Can I just nerd out for a second? Because I'd like to nerd out for a second. Um, Greg Young joined me today, uh, and we talked about New York City history. Greg Young is part of the dynamic duo who record Bowery Boys, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, They also wrote a book called Adventures in Old New York that just came out not too long ago. They are um, the end-all, be-all of New York City history. Their podcast is incredibly entertaining, and it talks about everything from the Williamsburg Bridge um, to the Haunted Seaport to everything in between. It personifies really what a podcast should be uh, in discussing New York City and its history and really how we came to be what we are as a city. So I I sat down and had a really long, awesome conversation with Greg about architecture, about us complaining about the way life is when it was so much more difficult, even 100 years ago or 150 years ago. An illuminating conversation. Um, I can't thank him enough for coming by, and I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, uh, No, it's my pleasure. Um, uh, um, Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited. Am I supposed to kind of mention that we're in Williamsburg? Yeah, we can mention that we're in Williamsburg. Um, We just did our last show, was on the history of the Williamsburg Bridge, and we just did an event right here in this very building, so it's very nice to actually come back here in In, Williamsburg. In this building? In this building two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Crazy. (laughs) I was like, the the universe is aligned. But, um, But no, thank you. Anytime I get to come to this area of Williamsburg, it's a delight for me. So, so we were just talking about just a, a couple minutes ago the value in knowing history. Like, I want to. We're going to get to a ton of historical facts about New York, obviously, and, and neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But you and I were going back and forth. I mean, I work with brokers all the time, and and none of them, to my knowledge, bring up the history of a building. How important is that? I mean, to you, as someone that loves history and as someone that knows New York so well. Mm-hmm. Well, the. Um... One of the reasons we started this show all the way back in 2007, I mean, it's, I think it's a little naive today, but I, I think, it, I think in, in, in many ways, this core statement's even more applicable, which is the idea that rents were going up in the city. My own personal rent was going up in the city. Um, and yet this place that I was renting that maybe like I could click the boxes of like, why, why am I paying so much money to live here? On the other hand, all this history had come through that building. So in this particular case, um, Tom recorded, we started the show in the Lower East Side and Tom lived on Essex street. I lived three blocks down on East Broadway. This is one of the most historic, um, areas for Jewish American history. Um, it's a, the Lower East Side has a rich, important history to American history and here I was I stumbled upon this little place and so all of a sudden like once I started like just my personal research of this sort of thing it went from like oh I'm paying too much to like wow I'm living in this really cool place right I'm paying still the same amount of money but all of a sudden just a little research made it kind of worth it so um you know I I mean I've been a history made a um, a study history for many many years and in college and finally kind of sort of trained myself, uh, uh, gave myself sort of a history education by the time we started the show. So from there, um, we had various different goals, but mine was basically to make New York like every street corner possible to like, to bring forward the history so that if you're having a lousy day, if you're walking from your office to home 
and you're having a terrible day, but you can pass five or six things where you're like, oh, you know what? But I do live in the city where this happened right there and that thing happened right over there. And I am going to the house where like Billie Holiday lived in 1933 or whatever. Like if there's, if there's ways to include yourself as a part of that history, you know, then I thought that that was, you know, a really important. And I thought it brought the city alive in so many different ways because now we interact with historical districts and landmarked buildings all the time. I mean, sure, the city's changing, but so much of it is saved thanks to um, regulations and historic districts and things like that. So it's in front of us. So I think it's important to, to, to know it because I think it makes your life better. You know, um, you walk across any New York street and everyone has their face buried. I mean, it's a cliche thing to say in their iPhone or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and they're looking down. And, and even on my commute today, so I, I moved my offices. I merged firms and I moved my offices officially here at Williamsburg. Oh, cool. And, um, and I walk down the same um, street on Driggs every single morning. Um, and every single day I, I look up uh, and I see something new, right? Something from the early 20th uh -huh. century or something from the 1950s yeah. or 1960s. And I immediately think of the story of the people that live there. I think too often we, and I don't, I don't want to sound cute about it, but I, I, we, we live in such a wonderful area when it comes to history. And even not yes. just for New York, but for the country, right? Yes. Where it essentially started to a certain extent right here, well, downtown New York. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't notice that. Right. Um, and I, I think that's, that's, you know, we're not necessarily the better for it because if we just looked up and looked around, we would be wowed every single day by <laughs> where we're actually standing in yeah. all these streets. And I just think practically speaking, there's a lot of value to knowing history. For instance, mm -hmm. like why, why are certain subway stations where they're at? You know, why is the bridge where it is? Why isn't it up six blocks? Why isn't it down six blocks? Why is the Hasidic Jewish neighborhood of, of Williamsburg on that side of the bridge instead of this side? There are reasons for all of that. And you can trace them and you can find those historical reasons. And I just think that it makes things, like, I, I think it makes life's inconveniences go away a little bit when you're like, oh, okay, well, there is a reason for that. I can't just like complain about it. Um, I mean, that's why I have to tell myself with the subway, for instance, Every time there's like, I'm waiting 25 minutes on a platform for an F train. And I'm like, Jesus, we have like the worst subway system in the world. Then I have to realize, actually, we don't. We have the biggest subway system in the world and one of the oldest subway systems in the world. And because of those two things, um, there's like a whole litany. There's a whole history that happened between 1904 and now. And... As a result of that, my train is late now because they have to fix something over here, over there. So there's always like a, 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 a line you can trace back to a historical story and it can just it can give you like one breath of relief. And then you can go back to bitching about the subway. But. Which I do every day <laughs> in my life. Um, so that actually is a great segue. The two things I want to focus on, number one, obviously, is the history of, of a lot of the real estate that's in the city and neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And two is, I've been fascinated, you just mentioned, you know, people in the 1900s or, or in the early 20th century or even in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the way people complain now. About, <laughs> Louis C.K. had this great bit about complaining about being like in a silver tube that's flying in the sky. Mm -hmm. People complain about everything from the train being late to um, too many people having the flu. Like, And we have okay. no, we don't necessarily as humans have the ability, and this is why history to me is so important, mm -hmm. of looking back and going, what was life 
How yeah. insanely hard, like how great do we have it now? How insanely hard <laughs> was it in New York a hundred years ago? Yeah. Well, right? can, well, so back to the subway example, what people f- were just famous for complaining about in the late 19th century was riding the ferry. Was really? Because so much, especially here in Brooklyn, it was the only thing that connected you to the city of New York across the water. But even more so, um, you couldn't. You could only. You, you could only catch one train that went all the way into New York because that was Vanderbilt's Hudson River Railroad. But if you took, if you were like trying to cross country, you would have to get out the train in New Jersey, and then you had to take a ferry over. Okay, <laughs> so people were like frustrated. They hated the ferry because it was really inconsistent. Um, you know, the both the East River and this growing by the late 19th century, the Hudson River had so much traffic. It was dangerous to cross. So when the subway came along, people were just like, oh, thank God. This is just like, this is just such a modern convenience. This is so, this is so amazing. I mean, this is like, thank God we don't have to take those ferries anymore. Right, right. You know, now we're all complaining about the subway and now people are like thinking about opening ferries again. Like, oh, wouldn't that just be like such a nice way to travel? You're out and (laughs) open it's like fresh air you're not in that tunnel and everything so what goes around comes around it's like and it's you know it's it's every element of life whether it be you know apartment living whether it be our transportation whether it just be the street life of new york talk to me about apartment living um and you can pick what area era of new york that you want because again now um now we complain about how small our apartments are yeah and how two bedrooms really are 850 square feet versus the thousand square feet like what was life like before well yeah there's two there's two aspects to this to to make our lives feel better today one of them is the fact that we live back to this lower east side apartment that i had where i lived in the two in the 2000s for for a decade um it was in a tenement building um that so it traced from like the 1890s um the building my my apartment had recently been renovated but it was two apartments that were put like so it was two formally separate apartments that had been joined to make one because they were so small that they couldn't really i mean i'm sure they could have probably rented them but like they made it into one so it's just sort of fascinating to think that here here i was single person living in this apartment that used to be two apartments that had probably at one time, six to eight people living in either of them, right? right? So people were, were so packed in, there, there wasn't a sense of personal privacy that we, right. that that didn't we had. Exist. You didn't have the luxury of that. No. And, and in fact, privacy was one of the kind of the cherished possessions of the elite, of the of the the wealthiest because they could carve out places for themselves that were houses that had 25 rooms and they could just go into a room and be alone although i guess you could also on the other hand they were never alone because they all had staffs right (laughs) right so but the idea of you know living next to somebody was an idea of being poor like you if you lived by people that you didn't know and weren't related to you that meant that you were poor um, otherwise, you lived in like standalone houses, uh, townhouses, and brownstones, and that's that's such a th- that type of thing. The great sea change for New York 
happened around in the late 1860s and 1870s and got really rolling in the 1880s, which was the idea of this apartment living, which came from France. The idea came from France, which was you have money, but you don't want to have a whole big house. You don't. Um, you like the finer things. You want to have a staff, but you don't. Um, you don't want to maintain it yourself. Right. So these first apartment buildings were actually like perhaps like six to eight sets of people of, we would call them upper middle class today, um, too wealthy. And they would share staffs between them. So it was like an alter, it was like a, like, it was sort of like apartment living with training wheels for rich people. They were like, well, we need, we still need someone to do our, you know, cook our meals and whatever, our valets. So, but again, it's the, the thing, the big hurdle they had to get over was the sort of lack of privacy that like even you know they would they would they might have to see a neighbor right i mean today that is i mean that's just the fact of life it's woven into our the fabric of being a new yorker is that you know even if you are super wealthy if you still live in a penthouse you're still living with other people you're still in the elevator with them you're still riding the subway or you're still on the street with them yeah Yeah, and that is a thing that just didn't um wasn't part of new york life until the mid-19th century. How do you compare the, and this is a tough sort of question to answer, but the wealth divide. We hear so much about um, the Mm -hmm. wealthy in New York and the middle class in New York and really, you know, the poor in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not downplaying it in any way whatsoever. I think there's obviously wealth inequality. But if you look at the the period of the Carnegies or or the Vanderbilts or anything else, I mean, it was was very, very different here as well during that time, no? Um, Yeah, I mean, there... They're kind of two similar things that are happening, but with a sort of a different set of uh, um, situations. Because before, you know, when the Gilded Age occurred in the late 19th century, and you did have these huge disparities of wealth, you had no infrastructure whatsoever, uh, A, to take care of those people uh, and the, the needs of the city, uh, of those who were less fortunate, nor did you have really, you know, too too much in the way of um, law enforcement. I guess I mean you could get away with everything because the politics was so notoriously corrupt back then. Yep. So you had these two particular things that was just that was kind of making the wealth disparity that much worse. Um, you know, today we still have it, and you know, in some senses we have it. Even it could be it's probably even greater because the people who are rich are even probably overall richer than the people who are poor in, in the city. Um, we don't have, um, it's, it's not quite the same thing for, for many reasons. You know, we do have a social safety net and we do have a lot more understanding of um, that we have to kind of keep that or the city's going to fall apart. Like it's not like that keeps those types of thing keeps the city running and keeps the city operating. You yeah. Know? And if you, uh, so I, I think of uh, boss tweed very often. And I think of, you know, when, when for, for some of our, our listeners who don't know who boss tweed is, I'll, I'll, I'll let you yeah, sort of yeah, go yeah. on with that. But um, when you think of Bill de Blasio or people alleging corruption here and there, um, if you go back, a very short period of time. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. um, the institution of the police force. There wasn't really, I mean, there was a police force, but it wasn't really there. And <laughs> Boss Tweed kind of ran the city. It, well, it, it? Wasn't for, it wasn't for the protection of everyone. And here's the thing is actually, you can still say certain things like that today. The, um, the types of things that are, the sorts of corruptions that happen today are a little bit more embedded 
Um, and, you know, I mean, it's a... Back then, the police were not there to protect citizens. They were, they were to protect, essentially to protect the, um, the upper class. To you know, essentially, um, you know that doesn't mean that they that if a crime happened in the street, they didn't stop it. But in many cases, you know, if you wanted protection, if you were just like a, a, a shop owner, if you were a bar owner, you had to pay the police for it. You know, I mean, it was all this a, a, a terrible, um, uns I want to I don't want to say unspoken because it was pretty much spoken. It was pretty much out in the open. Um, but that was the normal during that time, right? I mean, it wasn't like it was strange, was it? Was no, it no, it wasn't. I mean, it, it really depends on what, you're, what era you're talking about. But throughout the 19th century into the 20th century, I mean, uh, there's constantly been police reform. Like, there's always been these big moments where it's like, finally, we're going to turn the page. And then there is a moment where things look like they're being cleaned up, but then they revert back to normal because we're human beings. Um, with Boss Tweed, well, he was the head of the Democratic political machine, Tammany Hall. And he and Tammany Hall basically um, did everything in their power to get Democrats into office in the late 19th century. And this is a very different world because the Democrats back then, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Uh, you know, the, there was a, a slight reversal, but what Democrats had that is slightly, tr that is a little bit true today, um, is that Democrats really served the needs of the poor New Yorker. They served immigrant communities because, to be cynical, they needed their votes, and there was a ton of them. So that was really the, that was the, the, the connection, really. Um, but they did, in a lot of ways, help those communities. At the same time, getting extremely wealthy off of them. Right. So, um, and... Yeah, so I mean, when you just had a, a an abs absurd level of corruption on all on all fronts back in the late nineteenth century. So, um, do we still have that today? You have like a you know, it's just a different. It's a different it, type of corruption. It's a finer. It's a finer kind of corruption, I guess, in 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 in, in many ways. I want to um, one of my favorite podcasts that episodes I should say that you you guys did was on the South Street Seaport, mm, um, cool. and I lived there. Uh, Recently, actually, for, for about three years, a little over three years with my wife mm -hmm. until um, we had our child and we realized how expensive the South Street Seaport was <laughs> and the rats that uh, continue to live and, and make, make a living there. They're, they're, they're having a fantastic They've time. They've been there longer than any building in, the, in New York. Yes. Ever. Ever. <laughs> um, and it's, it, it's, it's just a really, really interesting area because that, that area, I should say, because it's uh, Front Street is frozen in time to a certain extent, right? The, mm -hmm. the buildings themselves are gorgeous and they ex exposed brick from back in the day, etc. I remember you telling uh, during that episode, though, you guys describing that that area and how rough it was. Can you give me just a couple yeah. snippets? Because I think, you know, a, a friend of mine's a, a very well-known real estate broker and mm -hmm. he's listing things there for about eight, nine million and it's a great community now. There's a new Peck Slip School and oh yeah, yeah it's just it's gorgeous and the water's there. It was horrible. And here's the funny thing about that. It's horrible in in a, in a real estate sense. Yeah. It's horrible in a good way because these are stories that give the neighborhood even they gave the they give the neighborhood a little romance, frankly. Yeah. Because it just it seems like a sort of an impossible era and you hear kind of wacky stories of like um 
rat pits and dog fights and all these types of things and brothels and and all these opium dens and all these different kind of things in the same buildings that are still there. Yes. And it's it just seems like a it seems imaginary, but it's not. It's it's it really is true. So the waterfront area, you know, I mean extended up and down the the whole length of the East River and um you know, the, the East River was really vital for shipping at the very start of the, you know, after the Revolutionary War and into the early 19th century. But then by the mid-19th century, with the opening of the Erie Canal, shipping slowly began going over to the west side of the island. And that became really the thriving port area, just very, very gradually. But that meant that the east side got really, really decrepit. And there were still ports and there were still piers and everything. There were still active industries, but... It really just slid into, um, you know, absolute debauchery in many different cases. Um, you know, one of the famous ur urban legends um, about New York is a little bit further north of South Street Seaport. Um, on the other side of the two bridges um, is a neighborhood called Corlears Hook. And... Um, Famously, as as the saying goes, um, the um, the the women of the night who worked on the streets of Corlers Hook were so numerous that the word hooker came from that particular name of the neighborhood. Now, whether that story is true or not, it's not been confirmed. But that should just go to show you about the sort of intensity yeah. of um, uh, of kind of like the vice industries that were happening around this area, around these areas. Here in South Street Seaport, it's very fascinating because. I mean that uh, the the gambling dens, the the beer halls, all these things, you know, lasted well into like the into the the twentieth century when it, when you know then a lot of it was actually quite vacated, and then South Street Seaport itself as a concept only came around starting in the nineteen sixties and seventies with you know preservationists who were like we can't lose this you know it's. All of this is being wiped away, like this whole shipping industry is being wiped away, and this is the heart of it in New York City. Those beautiful Skirmerhorn Row counting houses, and all of the all of those rows of old townhouses around, you know. So they really helped in preserving it. But I mean, in a way, what they've preserved is a sort of saccharine version of what it used to be. I mean, thank goodness you can't like reopen a, 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 a stale beer dive, but you know, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with, you know, the rat, I, I believe there were the, the, the founder of the ASPCA, there was a, there was rat fights that mm. were going down. Yeah. So there were so many, well, there was a, a famous, what's it? Oh my God. Kit Burns. So there's a, so it's a charming little townhouse. I wonder who owns it. It's really cute. So that's sub <laughs> subdivided. Oh, now okay. I believe in their condos. And I believe last time they were owned for about, Two million bucks per. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that was like that building, not just the location. That building was um, was a disreputable tavern um, owned by this guy named Kit Burns, and in the basement he would have rat fights and and dog fights, um, where people would come and they'd get drunk on the terrible toxic ale, and they would gamble. I mean, they would, I mean, there's all of these places had opportunities to gamble. There were there was like there was actual boxing. Um, there were actual, you know, card matches. But then here, there was, yeah, it was just dog fighting and um, this. Yeah, I mean, this. The, so the, and this happened so prevalently that, yeah, Henry Berg, the the president of the ASPCA, 
you know, got the city to do something and make this illegal. So, but it's here in this place. I mean, I wonder why I don't. Somewhere in that building is the actual location of the rat pit. <laughs> I walk, so I walk my dog by there every single uh-huh. day, and I would look in, and I would see these very well dressed people come out and get into their Ubers, and I'm like, "Lady, you have no idea where you're living." <laughs> like, this, there's so much that went. So, down. so here's the interesting thing to go back to the like, real estate, and like, so is that story valuable to that building? I mean, I think it has to. You know, <laughs> Maybe to those people, it's not. Maybe they were like, oh, this is disgusting. Or maybe they like believe in ghosts or something. But, you know, for me, giving it that kind of context makes a, not, not just a building, but a street and a neighborhood. It just makes the whole thing more essential to Look, me. I, I agree with you 100%. I think that people, in, and it's something I want to touch upon with you in terms of new buildings and modernity just generally, and I don't want to you know shake my fist at the sky and say no. modernity, but yeah. the stories that you can get from a lot of these places that people don't know, I think even from a sales standpoint, it makes perfect sense, right? If you're living somewhere where a huge historical thing happened, let's let's not say Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, so you want to live in, in the theater itself, but right. somewhere else where something nice happened, right? Um, that's a great story to tell, and I think that mm-hmm. a lot of people don't do enough storytelling when it comes to New York City real estate, and I wish right. they would because there's just so much beauty um, and history that comes out of a lot of these places. Well, I mean, there's the reason that New York is so expensive is because this is where like so much happened, right? So if you're going to pay for that, you know, privilege question mark, or, you know, the ability to live here in this place where all this happened, you should know some of the stuff that happened, I think, because it just is, uh, um, or, you know, I don't think you're getting the proper context for it. So what do you think of, I just brought up modernity and and modern buildings and the way Mm -hmm. things are. I mean, are you, obviously, this is a passion of yours and you guys have amazing episodes. What do you think of that versus the past? And and more importantly, what do you think of the way things are built now versus the way things were built before? And I don't mean this is a loaded question, like, well, it was built with love, but just (laughs) the emphasis on on detail or anything else versus what it is now. Well, that's a good question because the, um, you know, I mean, I tend to be kind of, more moderate than most people who would who would most people might think that i'm like oh no don't build anything new um i actually think some i i actually find that a certain degree of 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 some of the new skyscrapers that are coming up especially downtown some of the residential stuff you know in if they can find the context because new york has always been a in, in a way there's many neighborhoods that have like an oddball Motley Crue collection of things together. You know, we don't need to have everything uniform and we don't need to have everything from the same era. So um, I actually think that there's are more interesting buildings going up now than perhaps any other time in, since I've lived in New York City. Really? Yeah, but the skyline has always been kind of div- like diverse mm-hmm. and, and new buildings join it all, all the time and sort of make it a little more interesting. A lot of brand new skyscrapers, a lot of new condos that are coming up are a little bit more thoughtful in the process of how um, how they fit into um, the neighborhood, both in terms of the style and the structure and the materials and how that is being done, but even how, how the building is being sold. So, you know, so there's a plenty of buildings out there that are just like, we don't care about the neighborhood. We're just creating real estate opportunities for ultra wealthy people. There are other buildings. There's some going up on the Upper East Side, West Side, for instance, East Side, sorry, mm-hmm. um, that are like, we're going to put the history of this thing 
out there. We're going to like make an attempt to make this building part of the neighborhood. And even if the people inside the building may ultimately be of like a little bit more affluent than the rest of the neighborhood, that there is not, they're not ignoring it. You yeah. can still maybe quibble about like how these, um, maybe how they're going about it. Maybe there's, there can be a little tone deaf on occasion, but I mean, I think that the city's much better off with, um, with these kind of de developments that are like, look, we're this, we need to get everyone in on the ground floor. We don't want to be an island right. in the middle of an island, you know? And wealth doesn't disqualify you in any way, right? I think to no, your point, I think no. it's fantastic, right? It's, yeah. not, it's not this, oh, we hate the rich or anything else. I think that if you look at New York City architecture, it's, you're absolutely right. Contextually speaking, how do you fit into a particular neighborhood? Yeah, no, I don't think it does. It doesn't have to do with, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to do with money at all. No, I think that it's, um, you know, it's just the thought process that go through certain developments. I mean, Look at the, I mean, the High Line, for instance. I just walked to the High Line on, on Friday, and every time you go down there, it's like, oh, there's eight new buildings here. Um, but setting aside the Hudson Yards, which is not done, so none of us can judge it, I feel like all the kookiness that's kind of being built is at least um, in, like, in other, keeping with uh, the kookiness. That's others would disagree, but I think that it's kind of like, this this district is defining itself in a particular way. There's not anyone that's saying, well, you know what? I don't care about the district. I don't care about these people. I'm just creating this rental property that people can throw a bunch of money into. But there is a certain like, there's a certain care that's at least being like in developing this like, you know, weird Disney-esque architectural zone, which is in itself fascinating. So, and I know all of that's very heavily regulated, and a lot of it, you know, it's not just the developers itself it's also the city working with them and, and right. but i just feel like the more you work with the community the better these things look and the better in the long run these things really blend into the city and makes it better overall let me transition very quickly to williamsburg where we are mm -hmm. you just did a hell of an episode on the williamsburg bridge <laughs> can you uh just talk to me a bit, a bit about williamsburg generally and what this bridge did mm -hmm. uh, for brooklyn and for the community too well, you know, Williamsburg is so – it's hard to see Williamsburg, I think, as something unique and independent because of all the rapid changes, A, that have happened. But also, you know, I don't, I don't think of Williamsburg as being a northern outpost of the city, right? Because we have Queens and we have the Bronx and we have Manhattan. Like it seems like it's sort of centralized. But, you know, until the um, – 1860s all of the uh, all the real urban development was over in new york uh like below 42nd street and here in brooklyn or rather back then it was king's county um it was still like little developments you know primarily the city of brooklyn but the city of brooklyn was south of here so williamsburg was its separate thing um it was a was it? I can't remember. It was a town, then it was a village. It was part of Bushwick, then it separated from Bushwick, and then um, became a really important industrial zone with like Pfizer and Standard Oil and all these different huge companies. So a lot of money, huge influx, then they became a separate city. Um, just because of so that didn't last very long. The city of Brooklyn was really garnishing a lot of power. It was eventually absorbed into Brooklyn. But the important thing is that was it was north of Brooklyn. And so when the Brooklyn Bridge opened, the Brooklyn Bridge 
sent everyone into like downtown Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, but then sent people further south. So all these great neighborhoods then sort of had a new influx of people because they could get to these places. It was hard to live in Williamsburg or the quote unquote the Eastern District and connect to the Brooklyn Bridge. It was not easy. So they were sort of cut off from the whole thing, meaning that there was a risk that um, they wouldn't develop as quickly. I mean, they were still relying on these old ferries, for instance, to get back and forth over to New York. So um, even by that point, the the people in Williamsburg, and they had a lot of power. There, there were a lot of rich people there. Um, they also had a, um, a very powerful congressman named Patrick McCarran of the McCarran Park. Um, who had garnished um, a huge amount of power in state government. Eventually, a bridge was built to connect this neighborhood or this area to uh, New York. What was interesting about it, the sort of intriguing part, is that it connected directly across the water. What was directly across the water? The Lower East Side. So it wasn't connecting to like a city center. It wasn't connecting to another industrial region. It was connecting to the most densely populated tenement district in the world. So uh, the, I'm not saying it was unexpected because I think the people on the Manhattan side were really hoping that a bridge would relieve pressure. Just as they thought correctly that when the subway was built, it would relieve pressure. It would like give people a sort of affordable way to move, to get out and go to some of these other areas where, which were less developed and they could develop, live, you know, live better and healthier lives. That's precisely what happened with the Williamsburg Bridge. When it opened in 1903, you know, it, um, it's a very ordinary bridge in terms of, in comparison to say the Brooklyn Bridge and the critics didn't really like it. it. It wasn't made that well. It's been falling apart until the 1990s when they did some, some renovations that uh, had been really in, uh, slowly falling apart. But one really impressive and important thing is it did relieve the pressure in the Manhattan side. And so a lot of the, the, the tenement population could just literally walk over the bridge and, or, you know, take a very short trolley. It was not, it, it was not anything. And come over here where there was a lot more opportunities to like build a home, for instance, or in the case of the Eastern European Jewish population of the Lower East Side, they could come over here, develop an area where it could be a little bit more um, like an enclave. They didn't have to live with people from different populations and different religions. They could actually like carve out a little home here. And so today, that's what you're witness to on the, on the southern side of the Williamsburg Bridge is this enormous like entrenched Orthodox community that's over there. And it, it is like mostly in part because of the Williamsburg Bridge. Yeah, and no one knows that. I mean, that's the crazy <laughs> thing because you, you drive by and you go, oh, they live here. And you, you just assume that, that they, they've always lived here. Or right, that right. This, this community has always lived here. I mean, there, there was like a the, – I mean, the, the, the thing is we didn't quite drill into in the show because we, we didn't have enough time. But there was a Jewish community over here before the bridge, but it was German – It was so this, so this was a huge German neighborhood in the 19th century. So it was a German Jewish population. So there was a lot of so there was infrastructure in terms of like synagogues and 
and things that catered to um, those of the Jewish faith that were over here. But they got displaced by these people from another region who were also Jewish, and they were all a lot poorer. So that's where the transition happened, and that is because of the bridge, definitely. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple quick sort of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not originally from New York, correct? No, um, I'm from Springfield, Missouri. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you – so New Yorkers that grew up here scream that we want to leave. No matter what, it's just we're over it. It's horrible. It's disgusting. None of this makes any sense. High taxes, etc. How do you feel about the city? Do you love the city more because you didn't grow up here? I, I, I always ask people that are not from New York. I mean, I think that's probably true. To get back to this um, notion of, you know, why we started the podcast of like having, you know, like, like every inch of land here is like has a story to tell. I mean, I not to throw my town under the bus. I mean. Ozark, I'm also very fascinated in Ozark history because that's where I, so I was born in the Ozarks. But where I grew up in particular was just like a nothing sort of development on the side of town and didn't have any history whatsoever. Um, So, you know, so coming here to New York and then, you know, unfurling just like layers and layers of all these interesting history here has been profound. And yes, I mean, my love of New York continues to grow. Not that it, like, not that I'm not also fascinated in other places. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of the weird box I've got or the corner I've got myself into right. where it's like, well, actually I know a lot about New York. I love New York. I don't want to leave New York, but actually now that I know how to like, now I figured out how to appreciate a s- urban history. I could do it, it somewhere else. I could do it somewhere else if I wanted to. Okay. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, it's hard for me to believe I spent half my life here, though. I mean, I, I, it does feel like, um, you know, the first few years I was here, like, I didn't know anything about the history. I was scared to, to go around. I even – took me, like, a year to first ride the subway, I really? think. Yes. <laughs> it's intimidating. Like, if you're not from here, it's totally intimidating. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was different in the mid-'90s. <laughs> Are you – it's way different in the mid-'90s. Are you optimistic, pessimistic about New York's history uh, – not New York's history, New York's future – and on top of that, what would you, just from knowing history, what do you think we're at risk at repeating, if that even makes sense? Um, I think, th- I think, I think New York's doing really well right now. I think that, I think a lot of people are concerned about the possible new Gilded Age ramifications. Um, but I also think that New York is the most diverse city in the United States, in one of them, and one of in the entire world, and I think that's going to put us in a really good position in the future because we have just a, a huge diversity of voices that are involved, and there's a place for there's still a place for everyone here, and you can't say that about most places no. in the United States. You know that there's like there's that there's New York has a um, I mean it sounds silly. But I mean, it's you can be any anyone you want here. You still can. I mean, you still can do that. I mean, I know there's a lot of the old timers are like, oh, the East Village is dead. I mean, there's like a lot of people who are like, oh, in the good old days, you used to be able to do that. But now you can go to Bushwick. Exactly. There's other places. It's just you, old timer. That your place is gone, but it's there's a gone. new place here, right? Yeah. yeah. And then. Um, Wait, the second question was. The um, second question was, what do you, in studying history do you see oh, any? Oh. Do you see any things coming up now? 
Yeah, I do. So there's there is something, and it t- ties a little bit in, in, into that question. You know, there were um, we are the whole city is changing right now. Neighborhoods that like had been sort of quiet middle class neighborhoods for like a million years are now changing. You know, because there's this uh, huge burst of housing development uh, and rents are going up really high and it's going to hit it's going to like it can't go up forever i mean at least it cannot so new york has had a few times in its history where we reached that precipice and um a lot of them were not pretty you know <laughs> i think that's why i just want to i want to hone in on that because everyone and it really has to do with confirmation bias right i work with real estate mm-hmm. brokers i work in the real estate industry yeah and everyone says what's well, a great place to live and a price are going to go up they haven't always just gone up i think people right. again yeah giving giving to the theme of what we started with people don't understand history so well in terms of looking beyond 20 or 30 years that's where they typically sure yeah. war, up to world war ii mm-hmm. but New York rents haven't always just gone up. New York real estate hasn't always just gone up, right? I mean, there's no, no I mean, where it's I mean, there's look, I, there's always been places in New York where have that have always been like like desirable if steadily going up. Yeah. Um, but then there has been, but generally speaking, the city as a whole has not been a desirable place to live. You know, from the from the 50s into the early 90s, a lot of people would, would scoff at you if, if you said that. And the thing is, that is, and that's, just, that's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen, but it's how do you, how do we react? How do we protect ourselves? Should we be protecting ourselves now for that type of thing? We do not want to have, what we don't want to happen is what happened in the early 70s, where the city had to like cut services in certain areas of the city where it, um, you know, it neglected the most needy. It neglected infrastructure, you know? I mean, back to the Williamsburg Bridge show, um, they just stopped working on it and they even closed it for a very short period of time because it's like, we don't have the money for this, you know? This is not our priority. So... Which is unheard of now, right? If someone did that now, you'd be like, what the hell's going on? It doesn't seem like that's possible. Right. Um, You know, another thing I think we have to... to think about um, are sort of natural changes to the city too. Do you mean climate change? Yeah. So are I'm you well, saying it's real? <laughs> well, it's not. Well, it, I mean, let's look at I'm sanity. It's real. <laughs> it's, no, real. it's real. That is, when you go, let's just say, never did I realize that it was more real than um, you know a day after Sandy. So I lived in Cobble Hill, and um, I lived in like this very odd little place that was like surrounded in an evacuation zone but like my block was slightly elevated so I didn't have to evacuate so I just kind of like stayed there Um, but then like the next day I walked down to Red Hook and it was just it was a mess it was a total mess had the storm been just you know like I don't know like 20% stronger um, that it would have been a total disaster area I think. So, you know, those things are going to be on our horizon. Yeah. You know? And I think based on what we're talking about in terms of history, people should be mindful of that. And But we're not, right? We're not because if you look at 
even the Lower East Side, you have buildings that are going up right on the waterfront. The South yeah. Seaport's right on the waterfront. And people, so you'd have these press releases and, and people would say, oh, look, well, they're raising the lobby and the generators are on the roof. Sure. But are you going downstairs in the canoe? Like, how are you getting <laughs> to the grocery store? How are you getting to the Dwayne Reed? No, yeah, yeah, just because you live in your, the ivory t- yeah. tower here. And, the, you know, the developments, I mean, this is, I mean, it's, a, I don't, it looks like a really nice place. I don't want to, I'm not trashing it. I just find it very, very weird that on the Gowanus now, there's this like very handsome new development that is right up to the waterfront. You can actually, there's like a little, a cute little path next to it. I'm like, but I don't think the water is clean still. Like there's still sediment from 150 years ago from like toxic, there's yeah. toxic chemical sludge, sludge at the it's bottom beautiful. of it. beautiful. During the summertime, it's what makes the water sparkle. <laughs> well, so then I went down, uh, so on, Sa- on Sandy, I stupidly went down to the Gowanus mm-hmm. um, as the waters were rising, which was really <laughs> stupid. But then the water, like I went down there and the water was like licking, like it definitely went over the, yeah. the banks. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't know, this... This is going to ha- these things are going to happen again, and it's we can we can look at these buildings like the one uh, down the Lower East Side mm-hmm. and be like, oh, well, thank goodness that one's built to last. Right. But you know, Staten Island's not built to last. Um, there's you know, Coney the, Island's not built to last. Coney Island's definitely not built to last. Mm-hmm. So what are we gonna? I mean, are we gonna make a decision that like we're going to say we're going to spend millions, billions of dollars to protect these things, or is the world, is our literal world changing? I think our literal world. I mean, just just from my standpoint, I, I look at this quite often because I think there has to be this massive, and there is this massive cognitive dissonance. Bloomberg, when he was mayor, said, "Look, we have to transform this, and we're going to mm-hmm. put aside twenty billion, whatever it was." Nothing's happened. I mean, we got a park in Battery Park City with like an aquarium, this huge aquarium. I don't know that. <laughs> oh, right. That's true. I Beautiful. forgot. These fish that go around. But we're going to be face to face with the actual fish. But <laughs> I think that changes when you're not at the time where you won't be able to build up Rockaway again. Right? So what happens? Yeah, yeah. You flood out Rockaway and the people leave and developers come in and they buy it in bulk and they tear it down and they build it up and they rent it out for X number of dollars, pure profit. Right, mm-hmm. Breezy Point, which to me is absolutely insane to even touch. Right, and I get that it's a community that's been around for God knows how yeah. long. Breezy Point was flattened. It was oh, like, it would yeah, but yes. It was like <laughs> the only thing that wasn't there were locusts. Right, uh-huh. you had a flood and you had fire, and people are building it up again. Yeah. Again, so I think that that stops perhaps, and it's horrible. But you know, there will be another Sandy, perhaps something worse than Sandy. And people will finally say, or, or lenders will say, I'm not going to write a loan on this, no matter how much I'm getting in terms right. of flood insurance or anything else. Yeah. And the thing is, is like that can trip over into even something bigger because if you if you have a whole devastated portion of a city, that can then, I mean, that can be the first steps of a huge like financial turn in that city. Yes. So it's not just, it's not even just, do we protect this neighborhood? It's like, if we don't protect this neighborhood and this neighborhood is washed away, Will this essentially be the beginning of the end of the city right. itself? And, and, and to your point, things cascade because we're so close to each other, right? It's the mm-hmm. same thing with the Spanish influenza. I mean, it's, if, yes. you're, right, mm-hmm. if, if something happens in one neighborhood, it's not – you can't just cut that neighborhood out, right? If Grand Central isn't running, you're going to have a very big problem for commuters that are coming in from New Jersey and mm-hmm. from other places – um, or I should say Long Island, and you're going to have a problem in Murray Hill. And if you have a problem in Murray Hill, then how are you getting downtown? So – yeah, I think that the city has some issues to deal with. Um, <laughs> yes. I feel down about this now. Um, <laughs> now let's pick it up. Yeah, yes. all right. So, so two final things yeah, I yeah, want to yeah. ask you that I've been dying to ask you. 
You get to pick one book about history. Uh-huh. You pick. Oh, just, okay, so. Care. Could be New York, could not be New York, doesn't matter. Just one. <sighs> okay, so. I'm not to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> immediately on the spot. I mean, though. how could I not say uh, Gotham by Mike Wallace? Right. And, uh, because that is, uh, um, and uh, Edwin Burroughs, sorry. The, um, it's a book that's it's almost impossible to read straightforward. First of all, it's an, it's enormous, but I've never like it is it is just a catalog of wealth about New York City from the beginnings to 1898. Uh, it is just an extraordinary achievement of of no, no other book I've seen is quite like that. Now, if you want an actual, but you said just one book, so anyway. No, no, no I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give you two. I'll give you two. I'll give you two. Um. That is so. That's pre. That's before twentieth century. I feel like you can under. I feel like it's, it's. It may be cliche to say, but I think that like the Power Broker by Robert Caro is like, you know, it's a really long, depressing read, but you will absolutely understand why New York's. You'll understand many of New York's great dysfunctions after reading that book, and you'll understand the motivations behind it. Um, you know, we can argue, we can quibble about like, was Robert Moses a villain or an arch? Was he like the biggest villain as he's presented in this book? You know, that there's his legacy is a, a little bit more nuanced than that. But um, that one, it's just in terms, it's like one of the greatest biographies ever, ever written. So I would, I would point to those two massive books. <laughs> no, which is, they're going to be great summer reads. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I, want to ask you so i was going to ask you what your favorite episode has been mm-hmm. right and and certainly feel free to answer that but if you can hone in because you know so much about new york history is there a particular place monument bridge whatever like what's your favorite because my, my favorite thing I, I remember reading uh mccullough's book on the brooklyn bridge mm-hmm. and i never looked at it the same again because oh sure it was it, it's a great read and the book i should say the bridge itself comes to life because of that right and every time mm-hmm. i cross it i go the the sheer insanity of building this thing at that mm-hmm. time with the people that were involved and, and who died and how and, and, and everything else was just it, wild. If you could pick one place in the city, one monument, one whatever, what would it be? That's your favorite. Well, let me actually, because I mean, I could do a hundred, obviously. I know. I know. I want to pick something that's sort of recent from a recent show sure. because my world's changed after doing it. A lot of times I'll do a show or we'll do a show that reinforces my love for something. But um, when we did our show on Tribeca, on the neighborhood of Tribeca, the whole, my like perception of the whole area changed. I I guess, let me explain. I, I, when we chose this as a topic, I was like, "Eh, what's what's Tribeca's history? Like I didn't even, I mean, we've like, what is it? You know, you say Soho, you're like, oh, it's Cast Iron District. You say the Greenwich Village, you're like, oh, okay, it was this old British area, and then it's Bohemians. Like, you, neighborhoods are identified by sort of certain concepts. What defines Tribeca? Well, I mean, Robert De Niro? I mean, like, like true, very true. So, you know, and I'm saying that. Like, I mean, I've been, I do this as a living. So I couldn't, like, and that's the reason of, because the reason of that is because Tribeca is actually like a patchwork neighborhood. It's actually four historic districts because it has all these different histories together. Um, but what makes that magical 
uh, or what are the result of that rather is because it was a marketplace and because it was a dry goods district and because it was a it was one of New York's first wealthy residential districts, St. John's Park, up where the yep. that you know you get in the Holland Tunnel that like nothing yep. area it used to be like the finest park in New York City. Anyway, but as a result of this, and it's something that I did not piece together till after I, until I did the show, was there's this extraordinary diversity of architecture in this one neighborhood, perhaps more so than any other neighborhood, um, because it's all these different kinds of things that happened. And then um, what kind of wonderfully saved it, interestingly enough, was the, the World Trade Center was built and the, the area kind of, got, kind of uh, was in fear of kind of being demolished and that type of thing. And then the sort of Soho artist thing happened. And so those artists who were looking for like a new trendy place to like get lofts and do art, they went down to Tribeca. But Soho is very consistent architecturally where Tribeca is not. So it was the same kind of thing, but moving down here to Tribeca. And then um, all the historic districts came in the early 90s, right before... You know, had they had it been just a few years later, I think many of them would have been knocked down. It would have been totally redeveloped because by that time it was kind of a hip neighborhood. But now it was saved. Um, so I, so to me, that that neighborhood has a thousand more stories than it did for me like a month ago. That's wild. And you know, you know, every neighbor, every every story that we do, I have a, a obviously a, a much better sense of that of something after I do it and hopefully that's what we're able to convey on the show you do and I really want I mean like we want to do more and more neighborhood shows because this is the most explicit example of like because you can literally walk around and listen to it in yeah. that place you know I've done that before good oh but good you good, guys good. have gone on on location in, in a couple places as well right You've done yeah we don't I mean you know it the a little is a lot when we do on location type of stuff. You don't you don't want to hear us do the whole show on the street, but um, if we can find like pertinent things that kind of sound interesting at least, um, we do um, live stuff. I mean, the coolest live thing that we've done as of recent, most recently, was we did a um, underground railroad show of just various sites in New York City. I mean, it's a that's an interesting story because it's not. Uh, like, it's not a grand narrative. I mean, the whole point of the Underground Railroad is that it was underground and things were secretive. And so a lot of it's, like, rumored places in the underground. And it wasn't like one area has underground uh, railroad sites. Tribeca actually has a few of them, which is interesting. Doesn't the um, – where my building used to be, where I used to uh, work out of is 85 Broad. And I think down that street there was – for some reason I remember seeing a sign. Out of nowhere, it was by Adrian's Pizzeria. That it was the site of an underground railroad or, or something. Adrian's Pizzeria. Yeah. Wait, what, what was that cross? a printing press? That um, <laughs> either or, both historically <laughs> well, significant. Was it on the it was on Stone? I think on Stone Street. I think off Stone Street. Oh, it's possible. We focus more on the ones that were right. in Tribeca, but then the where we did our live uh, thing was at Plymouth Church in um, Brooklyn Heights. Yeah. So that has a they have a, uh, a really rich history of abolitionists, mm -hmm. uh, of being uh, had a leader in the abolitionist movement. Henry Ward Beecher, who was their big preacher, was the head of it. But they actually did um, keep people fugitives who were escaping from so the South, kept in their in their sort of uh, 
basement area. So we got to go down to the basement Which and is, we recorded a little, and it was chilling. Yeah, it was crazy. Which you know? is insane too, because you walk, these people that walk by with strollers have absolutely, I would say the vast majority of them have absolutely no idea how much historical significance is happening or happened 10 feet from them. That's yeah, well, I mean, saying. it goes back to, I mean, the, they are good custodians of their own history. They have they one sure sec- yeah. section of their church is actually a museum. But for the most part, most people aren't because they don't have the money mm-hmm. um, to do that. And so getting back to the you know original our, our original thought, here are these people with their huge, beautiful houses in Brooklyn Heights. And they must be somewhat aware of the history. It's by you buy a house in Brooklyn Heights. Yeah. But I mean, they even they probably don't understand the how important to it like American history. Just this one place is across 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 the way. So thank you for coming today. Yeah, no this problem. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, have a have a great New York week and enjoy um, enjoy your digs here in Williamsburg. Thank you. So where where do people find you by the way? Uh, of course, you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just look for Barry Boys on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast. There's all, all sorts of ways to look it up. BarryBoysHistory.com is the website. And then my email address is Greg at BarryBoysPodcast.com. And Twitter, Facebook, on all the platforms. All the, all the socials. All the kids are doing. All the socials. <laughs> all the right. socials. Thank you so much again. And thank you.